to Exodus chapter 7, Exodus chapter 7. If you're um, a member of First Southern or if you've been visiting here for the past several weeks, you know that uh, uh, we are engaged in an exciting study of the book of Exodus. As a matter of fact, this coming Sunday morning, we're going to be looking at that incredible confrontation that took place over a several day period when uh, Moses kept challenging Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. Pharaoh kept responding in the negative and one plague after the other leading up to the final plague, which was the death of the firstborn in each of the homes of the Egyptians, which subsequently resulted in Pharaoh's uh, release of the children of Israel. This is uh, an important moment in the history of Israel. Moses, as you know, was reared in the finest tradition of Egyptian scholarship, first 40 years of his life, even though he was a Hebrew. Through a remarkable set of circumstances, which uh, were of no coincidence whatsoever, but God's divine and sovereign leadership, Moses was actually reared by his very own mother. And so even though he was hearing all about the Egyptians and their gods during a very important uh, moment in the history of Israel, he was also hearing about the one God and about the importance of knowing him through faith. At the age of 40, through an ill-fated attempt to be Deliverer Junior, Moses ended up on the run. And on the backside of the desert for 40 years, God has schooled him in obedience and surrender and submission. And finally, he commissions him to go back at the age of 80 to be the Deliverer of Israel. Israel, of course, as you remember, was ecstatic when Moses showed up because life was hard for them. Uh, Pharaoh had determined that the Israelites were growing in such rapid numbers that uh, in addition to the uh, children, the young boys when they were born, the order was that they should be killed. In addition to that, uh, he was pressing hard upon them with labor. And they were building some of the things that some people go and visit today, as a matter of fact, over in Egypt. Life was hard for them, and so they were, they were getting ready to leave and go back to what is called the promised land, the place that uh, God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob years earlier. Well, you remember that uh, uh, Moses' request of Pharaoh was not met with uh, an abundance of joy on Pharaoh's part. As a matter of fact, he, he said, if the children of Israel have enough time to go out in the wilderness and worship, they've got enough time to produce more brick with less straw. And so now we find Moses out of favor with Pharaoh and out of favor with his own kinsmen, the Israelites. He is not going to be voted most popular in Israel, in Egypt rather, uh, during this period of time. And yet, as we saw Sunday, when you are walking with God, you may not ever gain popularity, but you will always have what? Respect. And even though Pharaoh and the Israelites, neither of them, uh, you know, considered Moses with favor, they did respect him. And he became, as the Lord said in this opening verse of chapter 7, he became as a god to Pharaoh. And although they might have done it begrudgingly, the children of Israel still followed along because they saw that God was in this man. He was a man of integrity, a respected man. Now, on Wednesday nights, as you know, we are looking back each Wednesday evening into the text that was the text for the message on Sunday and drawing out just another truth. It might be a parallel truth or a side truth 
or just an interesting thought that might surface as we read the scripture. And you say to yourself, now how in the world, um, how do we address that? How can I wrap my heart around that truth? And so I want you to look at a verse of scripture, if you will, please, this evening. Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, and let's stand together and let's look at this verse just for a moment because it's going to speak about the subject which is before us this evening. I'm going to be speaking on a hardened heart, and if you want a subtitle for this, it would be five dangerously false assumptions. The hardened heart, five dangerously false assumptions. You can make some false assumptions that won't cost you very much. Oh, I thought we were going to have a steak and lo and behold, we had uh, fish or, you know, that's not very dangerous, but you can make some dangerously false assumptions like, oh, I thought this was a parachute and it's a knapsack instead. And so that is a, that's a dangerously false assumption. All right. And so life or death uh, is in, is in the, uh, hanging in the balance here. And that's why I call these dangerously false assumptions. Notice what it says in verse 3. After God has said, Moses, you're to go before Pharaoh, and you're to tell him to let the people go, I, he says, will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. He says, I have a purpose in this, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt, bring forth my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Now, here is what the, the scripture specifically says. It says that God is on record as taking the initiative now in seeing that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. How could God do that? I mean, if God's loving and God's perfect and God's just, how could God do that? Well, that's, that's the issue before us this evening. We know why he's going to do it. He says the end result is this. I'm going to do some incredible things. These, these plagues, uh, uh, the power that the children of Israel are going to witness in Pharaoh. When it's all said and done, uh, Pharaoh's going to know that Israel has a God who is the one true God. And as a matter of fact, Israel is going to know that their God is the one true God. Everybody is going to be impressed with what happens. But, it, but he begins by saying it's all going to hinge on the heart of one man. Pharaoh, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. How could God do that? I mean, would God really do that to a person? If God's fair and just and honest and loving, what's the answer to that? And so this evening we're going to look at a hardened heart, five dangerously false assumptions. Father, I pray that our eyes spiritual eyes and ears, spiritual ears, would be opened to the truths which you have before this, for us this evening. And Lord, show us that for believers here, there is a danger in terms of a hardened heart. And that for any person here who is yet to receive you by faith as Savior and Lord of his life or her life, there is an incredibly dangerous uh, assumption on their part. And that is that they can do it their way, in their time, on their conditions. And Lord, help us to realize we don't have you in some little box here 
that you are the creator, we are those who are created. Father, we pray that tonight each of our lives will be changed because of having been here. We'll be better people, different people. You'll give us a new sense of urgency about the importance of settling issues quickly with you when you speak to us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This issue of the hardened heart doesn't relate only to those who do not know Christ as their Savior. Later on in the message, I want to share with you from a passage of Scripture which tells about the time when God's own people, Israel, hardened their heart against Him. And the end result of hardening their heart against God was that all of those in that generation who did so wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and subsequently died without ever going into the promised land. And so it is not just believers, or not just unbelievers, but believers as well, who need to be concerned about the issue of a hardened heart. By the way, the entire third chapter of the New Testament book of Hebrews, the entire chapter is given over to the issue of a hardened heart. And so this is a big deal to God. It's an important thing because, you know, it requires a conscious effort. I mean, it's something that you do to yourself. And it's, a, it's an incredible choice to disobey God. And it has an impact. It has an effect on you. Uh, you don't just turn around and get right after days or years of, of disobedience just because you have a notion to do so. You come to God on His terms, in His time, or you don't come at all. Now, I'd like for you to look with me at these five dangerously false assumptions for just a few moments. And I'm going to give them to you in um, pretty short order because I want to read a rather lengthy passage of Scripture before we are dismissed this evening. The first dangerously false assumption is this, that a person's heart, your heart, my heart, is just naturally sensitive to God. That is not true. That is that your heart or my heart is just naturally sensitive, naturally desirous of doing God's will, just naturally open to him. That is a false assumption. The Bible says that our hearts are rebellious, that we are in our own nature sinners. All have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. We're all like sheep, Isaiah said. Uh, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. The heart, the Bible says, is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? The Bible says, as a matter of fact, you take all the good things that we do to impress God. And it says all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. Why? Because they're born, until we come to know Christ, they're born out of hearts that are just right, basically rebellious against God. Every once in a while, I meet someone who thinks that, that sin is something that you do against this wonderful, down, deep, deep-seated good nature that you have in your heart. And you go out here and you, you, you force yourself to sin for some reason or the other. But if, but if you just took off the restraints, you would go back to not sinning. Or that if you got in the right kind of environment, that you wouldn't be a sinner. By the way, just as an aside, that particular thought is a myth 
that will be exploded during what we often call the millennial reign of Christ. People say, why in the world would Jesus choose at, toward the end of the age to come and dwell on this earth for a thousand years? There would be this perfect society. Why is he doing that? Because at the end of that perfect society, when Satan is released from the pit, it will not take him but a heartbeat to gather up an army of people who will rebel against God. Now, what does that prove? That proves that you can live in a perfect society and sin is still in your heart. See, one of the big uh, unanswered questions is this. People ask this. What if a man was dropped out of a hypothetical airplane onto a hypothetical desert island where there was hypothetically nobody else and so he didn't have any laws and so forth? Would he be a sinner? Yes, because sin is an inherited nature within us. We are not naturally good. We are natu by nature bad. We are by nature rebellious. Um, one of the flaws of seeking to pour money into society in an attempt to change everybody's environment, thinking that if, if we give everybody the right environment, they're going to be good, is that it doesn't take into account this sinful nature. A slob in the slums will be a slob in the penthouse as long as he's got a slob heart. He just does different kinds of slob things. And it's because we are all sinners. And so there is this thought that, you know, well, Pharaoh must be just a really super nice guy. And then God, can you imagine this? God comes in there and God starts tinkering with his heart and God makes him have a hard heart. No, Pharaoh and you and me... All of us have hearts that are not sensitive to God, but that are rebellious to God. We are all sinners. So false assumption number one, which is dangerous, is that your heart is just naturally sensitive to God. No, your heart is not naturally sensitive to God. Sin is, sin is not something that you go out and do and then become a sinner. Sin is something that you go out and do because you are a sinner. And that's just the, the evidence of it, Okay. All right, false assumption number two, dangerously false assumption number two. And that is that God can only be or do what you want him to be or do. That is that, that, that God is what you believe him to be, or God can only do what you believe God's going to do. By the way, Pharaoh had asked this question to Moses. He said, who is this God? You say you're going out there to worship. But, but there are a lot of people who believe that. Now, let me show you, let me show you this to the extreme. Um, Greek mythology. The, the Greeks had a, had, had a theology. But their theology was something like this. There's a, there's a big God, you know. You've got Zeus, you know, or you've got... Uh, uh, Apollo, or, or you've got Dionysius, or you've got uh, Eros, or, or, you know, all the, they have all these gods, and these gods have got problems. They pout, and they whine, and they cry, and they fight. You know, when they would have storms, they would say, well, that's chariots running across the sky, lightning bolts. Oh, they're really having it out up there. You know, somebody must be losing, you know, blowing a stack today. You know what? You see, all these Greek gods, see, they were just exaggerated caricatures of themselves. What they had done was just create a God that was like them, only what? Bigger. Instead of holding up barbells, it held up the world, you know, Atlas. Um, and so the God, their God was a God out of their imagination. And, and people who have a hardened heart 
have a tendency to believe God can't do that. God won't do that because God can't do that. God, God would never do anything that I don't think he would do. And God will never be what I don't think he's going to be. So what they've done is they have created their own God. You see what I mean? And that is a really dangerously false assumption that God can only be the way you think of him and God can only do what you think he can do. Listen, God is the creator and the sustainer of the universe and the creator is always bigger and beyond that which is created. The Bible says the ways of God are past finding out. You, you, you will never find out all there is about God. You can take this vast universe and God just did it. This incredible universe. And then you can look down inside the, an atom, the smallest atom, and see all oh, it's another universe. And God just did it. And then he holds it all together. It is an incredible thing. But God is not a product of your imagination. And people who harden their hearts toward God say, well, God, that's, that God won't do that because I won't let him. Mark Twain was one of the, one of the most glaring examples of this. I know everybody has sort of an affinity for Mark Twain because, you know, you think, well, Huckleberry Finn, you know, and Tom Sawyer and, and all that kind of stuff. But the truth of the matter is, Mark Twain was, uh, was not, he was a very profane person. And on one occasion, he wrote a, uh, a treatise called Letters from the Earth. And basically, he, he, and he had uh, a little poem, and he said, if I were God and God were me, I think that I would kinder be. That's all I remember of the poem. That was the part of the opening couplet. If I were God and God were me, I think that... In other words, he was saying, you know, I think I could do a better job than God of this. Well, that's evidence of a hard heart. The false assumption that you, that God can only be the God you think he is or do what you think he can do. And so here we say, well, God, you know, how, how could I have my heart hard? You know, how could, but we have a world full of people. You, you just listen. I remember when I was talking about the importance of marriage fidelity, uh, uh, some, who, who was it? Some singer. It was in Esquire, the only time my pictures ever appeared in, in Esquire, you know, that uh, tabloid thing. I'm not proud of it. I'm just, was it Esquire or was it Star or something? Star. Okay, you know, here I am. You know, somebody brought up, hey, Brother Tom, he said, you, you're featured here in Star. And there was some singer who had, who, who had uh, been married three times, and I'd said something about the importance of marriage fidelity, and she'd been married three times, and she said, well, my God wouldn't do that. What was she saying? She said, well, we have different gods. He has his God, I have my God, and my God wouldn't do that. Well, sorry, God is not who you think he is. God's not somebody you thought up. See, that is a dangerously false Assumption, all right? Dangerously false assumption number three. That for an individual to have his heart hardened would be, quote, unfair on God's part. And God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so you say, in your, in your heart, you say, that is unfair. Okay, now listen. Try, try to grasp this here. You're not the judge of fair and unfair. You didn't write the rules. Every, almost, not every, but, but, but most of the people who are incarcerated go through a period of time where they're saying, well, what happened to me was just unfair. I mean, I, is that right, Jim? I mean, it's just, it's just unfair. I mean, 
you know, whatever it was, not, not, it wasn't unfair. And see, the, the lawbreaker doesn't have the privilege of deciding what's fair and what's unfair. See, it's the righteous and holy God who decides what's fair, not unrighteous and sinful men. See, for us to, tell, for us to decide what is right and what is wrong makes about as much sense. You, you take a little baby. Here's a, just months old. And this baby is in a, in a baby bed, and mom has just, has just fed this baby and burped it and diapered it, and the baby's gonna go, and, and mom puts the baby down in the bed and walks off, and, and Junior starts crying. And he starts kicking. And, and in his little baby brain, he's saying, Mother is unfair. This is not just. Now, he doesn't have words. This is not just. This is proof, by the way, that, that we are born with a sinful nature. Um, that's why kids are great, you know, because they teach us a lot about ourselves. But th- this kid is crying. In this, but this mother just goes on and lets that child cry. Now, from the child's standpoint, the mother is what? Unfair unloving, uncaring. It just so happens that the mother knows better than the baby what the baby needs, right? By the way, this wasn't unfair at all to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has just been living for years with open testimony that there is one God in the fact that there's an entire nation that believes that, living right under his nose. And so it's a dangerously false assumption for you to think that God's hardening a person's heart is unfair. Because you've got to know that God is perfect and just and true and holy and pure. and Everything he does is right. Whether you understand it is not the issue. It is whatever God does is holy. It is right. It is just. Now, we're going to get down to the two final ones here, and these are... If, if they can be most dangerous, these are the two most dangerously false assumptions. They all zero around, all revolve around this hardened heart business. It is dangerously false for you to assume that God has to do something to take action in order to harden a person's heart. That's a dangerously false assumption. See, God doesn't have to get in there and tinker with your heart in order to make your heart hard. He just has to stop convicting you. He just has to back off. I don't think y'all understand this like I'd hope you would. Let me explain this. Do you have hardened hearts? We all do. Well, let me explain this. When we lived in Zimbabwe... It was semi-arid, and the tendency of the land was to desert. And we had to fight off the encroaching desert, dryness and desert. I mean, we, you know, we, ponds, and, we, and then they would go dry. And, 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 you know, there was a time when we had a beautiful uh, gr- grassy front yard, and then there was a time when we had no grass in our front yard. I mean, there was no water, and we had to have water to fight off the desert. And without that water constantly fighting off the desert, the tendency was just to become desert. 
The other day we were in, in Georgia that with all the humidity and everything there, the tendency there is for growth. And so what do they do? They fight off growth. They're always cutting and chopping and weeding and pulling because the natural tendency is to grow stuff. Oklahoma, we just naturally tend to be whatever we are. But, but here's what I'm saying. The heart, listen, the heart's natural tendency is to be hard toward God. God doesn't have to get in there and make your heart hard. He just has to stop hammering on you. He just has to back up and let your heart become what it will be. Now, why do I say this? Because you see, you may think that, that, that the sins you're involved in, you're doing under duress, or you're just doing for a period of time. And there's not really any consequence because you'll get to a point out here and, and you'll just stop doing them and you'll become this wonderful, sensitive, naturally spiritual believer in Christ. Wrong. All the things that you are involved in that are antagonistic to the principles and the ways of God are the thing that your heart naturally runs to unless it's under the control of Jesus. That's just it. They're the deeds of the flesh, which are constantly at war with the deeds of the Spirit. <laughs> which brings me to this last uh, dangerously false assumption. And that is that you don't need to be concerned about the issue of hard-heartedness. It just won't happen to you, and you'll just come to God when you won't. And that sitting here tonight, the fact that you're not really involved in following the Lord and serving Him like you want to and reading the Word of God and praying and giving as you should and witnessing, that's just, this is just a stage. Hey, it's a stage. And, and one of these days, maybe it'll be next week. Maybe it might be tomorrow. I'll, I'll finally decide that I'm going to really get right with God and I'm going to get things squared around. I'm really going to do that. And, and the idea that it's just not going to happen to you and that you can come to God when you get ready is a dangerously false assumption. Now, first of all, if you are a non-believer, by that I mean, I don't mean that, I'm not referring to the fact if you don't believe in God or Jesus or whatever. I mean, you can believe there's a God and believe that Jesus is and that he is the son of God, even that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave. You can believe all those as historical facts and not be a person who is born again, who has a changed nature. Because it's not when you believe them, it's when you bring yourself under those truths and you surrender to him, that you trust in Jesus, that you receive forgiveness and cleansing of sin and his eternal life. But if you've never done that, if you have never come to that point where you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, you don't just come to him when you get good and ready. I'm going to read to you from the first chapter of the book of Romans. This is a lengthy passage of Scripture. I'm going to begin with verse 18. But I want you just to listen. You can turn there if you'd like, but I want you to just listen. This is what the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they know truth, but they're not treating it properly. They have it. They even know about Jesus, but they hold it in unrighteousness. They, they laugh and they say, oh, well, I'll get around that one day. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. In other words, we can know something about God from the very creation of this world. 
Sure we can. We get order and sense out of this world because order and sense was put into it. You have two of these clay tablets back in the you know, early Egyptian history and you have one guy writing in them on, on them with cuneiform writing which looks like you know, footprints of a chicken and, and he's writing, Dear Mom, you know, things are going great here. It's a dry day in Egypt. You know, weather hadn't changed in 30, 300 years. And, you know, hope everything's well there. Have another cup of sand by. And uh, he's writing her this letter. Well, while he's doing that, this wet tablet, uh, the second one's over on the ground, and a chicken's running across it this way and that way. Well, 100,000 years later, an archaeologist discover both of these, and they pick up one, and they say, hey, wait, there's an order. There's a pattern here. This is what happens. The Rosetta Stone is the way. There's an order. There's a pattern. They start studying that, and, and because sense was put into that, pretty soon they get sense out of it, and they translate it. Then they excitedly pick up the other clay tablet and they say, hey, this is great. And they say, oop, must have it upside down. Oop, no, maybe it was written sideways. And they don't get any sense out of it, where that chicken ran across, because no sense was put into it. And what he's saying is here, the invisible things of God can be known from the things that are clearly seen. I mean, God through natural revelation reveals there's a God. We get order and pattern out of the universe because order and pattern was put into it because the reality is this, things tend to disorder, not order. They wouldn't become more orderly, they get less orderly, you see. And so here he says, uh, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal Godhead, or eternal power and Godhead. So they're without excuse. Now notice this. Because that, here's what they did. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful. Here's Pharaoh. But became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of an incorruptible God, just like they did in Egypt, into an image made like corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and to creeping things. Notice this. Wherefore, what did God do? He got in there and just made their heart hard. No. Wherefore, God also gave them up. He just backed off to uncleanness through the lust of their own heart, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. They changed the truth of God into a lie. They worshiped and served a creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, here it is again, God gave them up. He just let them go. Unto what? Vile affections, even the women. Here he talks about homosexuality and lesbianism. The women did change the natural use of that which is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly, receiving in themselves that recompense of their error. In other words, he, he said they sowed and they reaped the same, their error which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Who is this God? That's what Pharaoh said. What happened? God gave them over to what? A reprobate mind, hardened heart, to do those things which are not convenient. They're filled with all unrighteousness and fornication, wickedness and covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, uh, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only to do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. In other words, they turn on the TV and they do that, but they also laugh at people on TV who do things that they wouldn't think of doing. They have pleasure in them that do them. God just gave them up. And people say in our nation right now, no, we're not under the judgment of God. We can do pretty much what we want. That is the worst judgment of God. To just get to the point where you just do anything you want. You don't even feel bad about it. That is the judgment of God. I want to tell you something. Our nation is under the judgment of God. We are under the judgment of God. So it is a big deal. You don't just say, okay, hey, God, I did all this stuff, and uh, hang around here a little bit. I'll be over to you in a minute. I'll get with you in a little bit, God. If God has spoken to your heart and you've surrendered to him, you ought to thank him for his mercy and for his grace that before he just gave you up, he spoke to you and gave you the grace to respond. 
You say, well, it wouldn't happen to me as a believer. Thank God I respond that I'm in church on Wednesday night. I would never become hard-hearted. I won't read it to you tonight, but the 95th Psalm says this. Here are God's people. And he said, they came to a point where I told them what to do, and they refused to do it. The end result was 40 years in the wilderness. He said, then today, Psalm 95, if you hear his voice, you harden not your heart as in the day of provocation in the wilderness and the day when they tempted me and tried me for 40 years. And I swore in my wrath, says God, that they would not enter my rest. Why? Because they hardened their hearts against me. So this whole issue of, of hard-heartedness, don't make these dangerously false assumptions about that issue. Don't just read that and say, well, it's God who's got a problem. No, we are the ones who have the problem not God. And the only answer is through the grace and the love and the mercy of God expressed in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us, for your grace, for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here tonight. Lord, I pray if there's one person here this evening who's just taking you lightly and carelessly and callously and just sort of sauntering through life and thinking they're going to get to you when they get a chance, Lord, I pray that you would show them they're walking on thin ice, they're dangling by a thin thread. Lord, you have said in your word, God gave them up. And Lord, when you back off, what happens is we just, our, our hearts just run away in rampantly rebellious when that happens. And we're not, because we're just not naturally good, we're naturally sinners. And Father, thank you that you sent your son Jesus who died on the cross to pay the price of our sin for the wages of sin is death. And you raised him up from the dead having that price paid and he is alive for those who tonight will receive him by faith as their Savior. Lord, I pray tonight there would be people tonight in this service who would say, I want to trust Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. With our heads bowed. And our eyes closed. Our praise singer is going to lead us in a hymn of invitation. We're going to stand in just a few moments. Would you make up your mind that tonight when we stand, you're just going to stand coming to this altar. It could be that you're a believer in Christ and, and God has confronted you with specific issues. And you just said, no, Lord. Or you just said, Lord, I know there's some things you're asking me to do in my quiet time, my devotional life, my giving life. There's some things you're asking me to do. And I guess I'll get around to it when I get a chance. And all of a sudden you realize, hey, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. That's hardening my heart. That's hardening my heart. I don't get to God when I get a good and ready. It's only if he's good and ready that I can come to God. And so tonight, as a believer in Christ, I'm coming to this altar and saying, Lord, make my heart sensitive and immediately obedient to you. If you've made a decision in recent weeks, we've not introduced you. I'm going to ask you to come be seated over here where it says seating for new members. If God's speaking to your heart about joining this church, I'm going to ask you to come. We'll have counselors here at the front. They'll be coming. Prayer warriors will be coming. Others will be coming. You just find a counselor and say, look, we want to join the church tonight. I want to be a part of this fellowship. What a wonderful time to do that. Let's stand together. Father in heaven, I pray, trusting that even now your Holy Spirit will work in this place. Help us to be sensitive and obedient immediately to you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.